This is Macro Horizons, episode 77, It Was a Very Good Year, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of July 13th. And as we ponder the week ahead, a quick glance at Monday the 13th offers more questions than answers. How did Friday become the frightening one? Mondays are much scarier. Just saying. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market had very little new information to digest. However, what we did see was price action that was somewhat disconnected from the broader macro narrative, specifically On Thursday and carried through to Friday, we saw a rally in the Treasury market, which brought 10-year yields back within striking distance of the bottom of the range, which is roughly 54 basis points in 10-year yields. Now, this came despite the fact that we had the 3, 10, and 30-year auctions, which would have, at least in a more typical environment, required some type of concession and put upward pressure on rates. Now, the broader story is that we also saw an increase in COVID-19 cases in the U.S. as the pandemic now starts to hit the sunbelt. Not necessarily inconsistent with the market's expectations. And let us not forget, while the equity market did retrace slightly as a result, we still see the S&P 500 north of 3,100 as the second quarter's earnings season approaches. Next week's early reporters include the financial sector, which will set the tone, presumably, for the near-term trade in stocks. The treasury market will be vulnerable to any better-than-expected performance in the equity market, and we would take the opportunity to sell 10-year treasuries close to 54 basis points, particularly on the first attempt to challenge that level. In the event that we start the week below 54 basis points, then our next target would be 49 to 50 basis points. It's not surprising to see that the yield curve has flattened over the course of the last week. This reflects the fact that the curve has devolved into primarily a directional trade, given how solidly the front end of the curve is anchored to monetary policy expectations. The strength of the reception for the 10 and 30-year auctions were notable. 10s stopped through 1.1 basis points, and 30s stopped through 2.6 basis points. This has made all the more compelling, given the complete absence of a pre-auction concession. We'll be the first to admit that we did find the late-week price action at somewhat of a disconnect from the broader macro narrative. We did see a retracement in equities, but the bid for treasuries was disproportionate. This is, however, consistent with the traditional seasonal patterns, which tend to favor the treasury market during the summer months. Well, we have typically used the seasonal patterns as a rough estimate to the trajectory throughout the course of the year, the magnitude 
of the pandemic-led repricing brought into question the importance or the relevance of seasonals in 2020. Now, while we remain somewhat skeptical that the path of least resistance will be toward lower rates from these levels, we are certainly cognizant that if investors are taking risk off the table, covering positions and de-risking into the summer months, we might actually realize a bit of the typical seasonal drift lower in rates. So to end the week, tens made it below 60 basis points for the first time since late April, but there was really nothing discreet behind the move. Yeah, that's one of the things that we have been pondering is the disproportionate rally in treasuries versus what appears to be going on in other financial markets. Now, investors have clearly been following the evolution of the pandemic and with case counts continuing to increase, particularly in the Sun Belt and a renewed focus on the mortality rate, it does follow intuitively that we'd have a bit of a risk-off move. What strikes me, however, is that there was absolutely no meaningful outright concession ahead of the 10- and 30-year auctions, and they still went as well as they did. Well, admittedly, it's been a very long time since the supply and demand dynamic has set the outright level of rates in the treasury market. We would have at least expected a nod to the significant auction sizes in a week where, frankly, there was very little else going on. I think another background factor for the rally was if you look back over the past few weeks, there was this kind of push and pull or divergence where you get an increase in COVID cases, but improvement in the underlying economy. In the past, call it five, 10 days or so, a lot of the higher frequency metrics are showing at least a partial stall, if not retracement in economic activity, especially in those states, Ian, that you pointed to. And what I'm referring to here is everything from the online restaurant reservation tracking to the amount of direction searches on these map applications to the New York Fed's weekly economic index. All are showing a pause, if not slight tick down. That's a bit of a shift in the underlying narrative where you get both an increase in COVID cases and some deterioration or weakening momentum on the economic front. This also speaks to the idea that we're at something of an inflection point for the pandemic. As we saw the first stage of the initial wave of the pandemic ostensibly peak in terms of case counts. And then as COVID-19 spread across the U.S., a resurgence in the actual numbers, there's been a rethink of the magnitude of the damage that's going to be done to the labor market, particularly if we see a fresh round of stay-at-home orders and a continued slowing of the reopening process. Given the lagged nature of economic data, we're now entering a stage where the incoming reports have a bit of a tailwind from the initial efforts to reopen, and that has left investors more willing to discount that information. And John, to your point, the stalling that we see in some of the high-frequency numbers could portend a downturn as the summer unfolds. And I think that that is one of the primary risks that's driving the price action in the treasury market at this point. And especially in the context of one of the more closely watched higher-frequency releases, which is jobless claims, as time rolls on and the covered period of initial and continuing claims moves into the July NFP survey week and periods when some of these states have needed to reclose bars, restaurants, etc., 
and the layoffs that come along with that. In my mind, there is an incremental risk that the dynamic that we saw early in the first wave of the pandemic in the Northeast, where the weekly figures did trigger price action, could materialize in the later part of July or early August. Definitely not a foregone conclusion, but something to keep in mind as this sort of slowing that we're seeing plays out. One nuance, Ben, I think that's really important to have in the back of all of our minds. You mentioned continuing claims. Well, if you look at just the regular series of continuing claims, those continue to grind lower as people go back to work and the labor market heals. However, when you factor in some of these other programs, the PUA and some of the other federal programs, we're actually now at new highs north of 30 million people on these continuing claims. How that plays out over the next several weeks is going to be important to watch, if only because there's some policy uncertainty around the end of July about whether some of these unemployment benefits get extended or canceled or what exactly the labor market support is going to look like come August. John, that's a fascinating point. And given the current political climate, not to mention the upcoming presidential election, I struggle to imagine that there won't be a reasonable amount of back and forth when it comes to the decision whether or not to extend those benefits. Now, my baseline assumption is that Washington can't afford to not extend the benefits if for no other reason than they have at least ostensibly prevented the recession from being worse. But it is an election year and strange things can happen in D.C. And as we move forward in this summer, it's not exactly a surprise to say that the presidential election is going to gain more and more attention. I'd say especially so as we approach the conventions in mid to late August. One conversation I've had with clients and colleagues that seems pretty widespread is this assumption that support for Trump is understated. There's this dynamic where people don't want to express support in polling or over the phones. Fair enough. We saw that in 2016. The nuance I really want to hammer home is one of scale. Right now, if you look at the difference between Biden and Trump and the national polling, often the spread is coming to something like 10, 12 percentage points. If we go back to 2016, which in and of itself was a unique election, the support that was understated was only three or four percentage points. So that understated gap can probably make the election closer than it appears right now. But if current polling holds up to the point where Biden has a 12 percentage point lead, it's going to be extremely difficult to close that gap based on misreporting alone. And we all learned some important lessons from the 2016 election process primarily not to trust the polls. That said, given the dismal performance of the real economy in the U.S., that alone suggests the bar is very high for Trump to retain the White House. Now, that doesn't mean that financial markets won't respond in the run-up to the election for any potential for Biden not to capture the White House. We haven't talked much about what happens after the transition into a democratic administration, however. The baseline assumption seems to be that taxes will increase, although at this stage, it's difficult to imagine that that hasn't been factored into financial markets, given, as you point out, John, the significant lead that Biden has over Trump. What I will be fascinated by will be the initial post-election trade once the results become available. Now, as I understand it, most people are not expecting that the results will be crystal clear immediately after election night. And even if it takes four or five days, 
the notion of taking risk off the table and being sidelined for any significant dislocations comparable to what we saw in 2016 certainly resonates with me. One of my biggest takeaways from Trump's election in 2016 was the market's willingness to not trade the individual, but rather trade the party. Now, the caveat here being that in 2016, it was a surprise Republican sweep, and that led to a massive risk on trade. Now, if we see a Democratic sweep, does that mean that we'll have a massive risk off trade? where equities are under pressure, flight to quality to treasuries. I'm a little less convinced of that dynamic this time, simply given the disparity in polling. Well, one of the other reasons it might be different is, you know, if we go back over the past few months, what's the primary factor that's driving the equity market outperformance? It's not Congress. It's not Trump. It's the Fed. And the Fed is not going to change leadership, voting, or policy in the month of November. So what I mean by that is to the extent the Fed is the only game in town for financial markets, or at least the main one, that game is not completely shifting. Well, this also begs the question, what happens to Powell if Biden takes the White House? I think that's a great question. And if Biden is elected, something that's going to be very thematic in 2021, my first thought with that is that even though Powell is technically a Republican, there is an easy precedent for Democrats to continue to nominate Republican Fed chairs. We saw that with Clinton and Greenspan. We saw that with Obama and Bernanke. Theoretically, we might see it with Biden and Powell. Still way too early to say, but that's at least kind of a first thought when thinking about that topic. Well, and to your point, John, I think Powell has done a very good job of hedging his bets somewhat when he appears on national television. He never wears a blue tie or a red tie. He always does have that go-to purple on. That's an excellent point, Ian. And tie color analysis aside, if in fact it does end up being a Biden White House, I think all three of us are in agreement that a new administration will be far less critical of the nuances of monetary policy than the current one was. Pretty much throughout all of 2019 and early 2020, President Trump was of the mind that Fed policy was far too tight, but given Biden would likely be more traditional in leaving monetary policy to the Fed, it's unlikely we'll continue to get those headlines, suggesting that policy needs to be easier. Now, granted, Fed funds are at zero, so it's difficult to get much easier than we are now, but still, something to ponder. Well, the Fed could always expand the balance sheet a little bit further. And while negative rates are not really on the table, what we have seen overseas is that they are gaining momentum in some quarters. Nonetheless, I think that the biggest potential monetary policy shift on the horizon, once we get past more explicit forward guidance, will be whether or not yield curve control becomes a reality. We haven't heard a great deal from monetary policy officials on that topic recently, although the market's perception is if the economic outlook deteriorates far enough, yield curve control will have to be on the table. I'd also point out that just by putting yield curve control on the table, the Fed has already partially implemented it. Maybe not formally, maybe not as aggressively as they would if it becomes codified law, but from a probabilistic sense, if there's a chance yield curve control is priced in, you're just not going to see five-year yields increase in any meaningful way. 
it's kind of not surprising that five-year treasury yields are right near the top of the Fed's target range in a world where they might be pinned right near the top of the Fed's target range. So just the discussion of yield curve control can reprice the market in a way consistent with actually implementing yield curve control. It does raise the bar for the Fed to follow through with yield curve control. After all, even if there is a relatively small probability, the more often that that is reinforced, the higher that probability becomes in the mind of market participants. And eventually, as we have seen in the past, if the FOMC fails to follow through, the risk is towards a significant backup in rates, presumably a pullback in equity prices, higher equity vol, and tighter financial conditions. And that's something that the Fed has proven time and time again that they're unwilling to risk, particularly in the face of a global pandemic. So that would just be a dip to buy in stocks, right? Aren't they all? Buy the dip. Don't be the dip. And speaking of dips, be it salsa or five-layer, One of the things that's been very thematic since the middle of March is investor conditioning to buy the dip in risk assets, especially just given the recent performance. So my next question, Ian, earlier you mentioned that we're an inflection point. What would it take to shift the investor mindset such that they're not actually willing to buy the dip in risk assets, thus really opening up some downside risk? I think it really does come down to Powell and monetary policy. Powell has come out and made it very clear that they're not worried about an asset bubble. They're worried about the employment market. They're worried about real GDP. They're worried about the fundamentals of the U.S. economy aside from the valuation of risk assets. So it would take a healing of the U.S. economy, a reduction of support from the Fed, And the notion that the Fed is no longer not even thinking about thinking about normalizing monetary policy. And frankly, I don't see that as a 2020 trade. If anything, it's a late 2021 trade. And there's a lot of economic data between now and then. It does seem like that runs the risk of a potential gaffe from a Federal Reserve speaker. You know, all they have to do is indicate, oh, we're thinking about potentially normalizing or we're starting to research how that would play out that could cause animal spirits to shift rather quickly. I agree. And what we have seen from monetary policy officials is a high degree of caution when it comes to talking about the near and even medium-term direction of policy. And that's the aspect of it that I expect will be difficult to transition away from, at least until we see the unemployment rate drop significantly and the extension of the first wave of the pandemic run its course. So are you saying that the Fed is socially distancing itself from any talk of normalization? Well, Powell has been wearing a mask. And he has been tested a lot in the past few months. Your humor is contagious. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will not be without fundamental information to guide trading direction. First up, we have CPI on Tuesday the 14th, which is expected to increase six-tenths of a percent month over month for June. Now, the core figure is seen gaining a more tame one-tenth of a percent. However, upward pressure on inflation, even if it is marginal in the near term, does represent a shift from the trend that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. 
Import prices are also expected to be seen up 1%. And then the all-important retail sales figures on Thursday will really help to define the market's perception of the state of consumption. Now, obviously, retail sales do not include the full array of service spending, and that won't actually come through until we see the personal consumption figures later in the month. Nonetheless, the consensus of plus 5.5% is very consistent with the idea that the depths of the downturn occurred in the month of April and May and June, which recall are still in the second quarter, are going to be characterized by making up for some of those initial losses. Now, the price action in the Treasury market in the week just past has been interesting, if nothing else, because the bid for long-end duration occurred at a point when supply should have been the overarching consideration. Nonetheless, with 10-year yields below 60 basis points, that 54 basis point range bottom becomes especially relevant. 30-year yields at roughly 125 are also up against some of the local extremes. We'd be remiss not to acknowledge that COVID-19 cases continue to provide a significant amount of trading direction for risk assets and subsequently for treasuries. Let us not forget that Friday the 17th offers an update on consumer confidence via the UMISH release. Given the performance of risk assets, any upward pressure on consumer confidence can be put in the context of a bounce off the lows However, with a consensus still at 80, it's challenging to call confidence high, even if adjusted for the current pandemic conditions. One of the primary risks remains an increase in lockdowns or additional pauses to the reopening process. The spike in COVID-19 cases in Florida, Arizona, Texas, and California continue to garner a great deal of attention, and we expect will ultimately be responsible for setting the overall tone for trading in U.S. financial markets and treasuries in particular, which remain in the uncomfortable state of being beholden to the price action in the domestic equity market. We have now entered the time of the year where we would expect trading conviction to be lessened and we would expect volumes to start to decline as the summer unfolds. We've yet to see that materialize, although we have had a couple days with below average treasury volumes. We really haven't seen the type of drop off which would be consistent with lagging investor conviction. That's something that we'll be wary of over the course of the next two or three weeks as July slowly transitions into August. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. As reopenings lead to a re-emergence into the outside world, we realize our fashion decisions have devolved into the blue mask or the light blue mask. Thankfully, blue goes with everything. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. 
You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.